Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Again, I'm tired. Of course you're tired. It's Saturday and you've been talking all day. Yeah, man. Last night we had our networking information night and that went that went pretty late. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not a drinker, but I decided to let's crack open some beers. <laughs> and that, 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 that didn't do too well for me. And then today taught to a class of some pretty cool RMTs, so... I'm a little bit beat, but I'm, let's... I'm pretty well rested. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I'm <laughs> fucking jealous. The good thing is that Connor's going to do majority of the talking today. Uh, he has to. He's he, well rested. He has to. <laughs> well, shouldn't and, have admitted that. <laughs> and also, as I said to you off mic, uh, we're talking today to RMT about... Um, something I don't know a lot about. So I'm I'm not going to say much because I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in this. Uh, As opposed talking- <laughs> to all the other times you pretend to be an expert. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll have mm-hmm. a chime in for sure. <laughs> <laughs> hey everyone, it's Amanda and we are hanging out in the office today with Connor who's chilling on our couch, well rested, wearing some nice shoes. I made him take them off and show me earlier. That's weird, right? No. I like shoes. What's, what's <laughs> weird is you didn't know what brand of shoes you're wearing. Yeah, that's, I guess that's, that's probably true. the weirder part. Or I, I maybe he has a lot of shoes. Do you have a lot of shoes? I do have quite a few pairs. Like, what are we talking? Are we talking more than 10 pairs of shoes? Yeah, probably like 25. Are you serious? Yeah. You can tell he's a shoe guy. Look how nice, like perfect condition those shoes are in. Oh, Because he's an outfit guy. That's I why. I wouldn't say I'm a collector, but. <laughs> but you're a clothes guy because clothes guys have shoes. I'm not a clothes guy. I, I've got a uniform, like a superhero. It's all black. And therefore, I've just got one set of boots. Just that one set of boots. Yeah, yeah pretty much. The whole day. <laughs> throw in a pair of shorts and some boots. And good. Exactly right. No, get out of here. Shorts with the boots. Only if I have the big, thick, gray, woolly socks and I'm pretending to be Pearl Jam from the early 90s. Oh, boy. Anyway. Flannel shirt tied around my waist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 90s grunge. I love it. What's wrong with 90s grunge? Nothing. I'm into it. We were tunes. listening to Pearl Jam before we turned on the mics. Great band. Yeah. Like you guys put it on or it was just playing? It was just your playing. playlist, dude. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Maybe, maybe you should have another drink. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> anyway, let's get on track. So we're sitting here with Connor today, who's going to talk to us about concussions because there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of uh, lack of knowledge, I think, amongst different healthcare professionals. And I know that I have seen some things that I thought, eh, that can't be right, but maybe Connor can let me know. What do you mean? What do you mean? What, what, are, what are you talking about? Well, for example, I have a client who came to me after her seventh concussion. I don't know. At some point, do we tell her you should stop playing? Yeah, mm. definitely. Yeah. Like you said, there's a lot of misinformation. Is that where we want to start? Uh, let's, let's let's start with you. Maybe I Connor. should introduce myself. Yeah, let's start with you. <laughs> tell everybody um, who you are yeah. and what you do. Other than my name is Connor, and <laughs> yeah. I've got a lot of shoes. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm a I'm an RMT. I've been an RMT for uh, going into year 14. And uh, my practice is just outside of Hamilton in Lancaster. And uh, the majority of my practice is sports-based. And when I started 10 years ago, I started mostly in Ironman and endurance sports. And then halfway through my career, I... uh started seeing a lot of contact injuries and a lot of concussions and I realized that frankly I had no idea what I was talking about mm. and was searching for answers and that's kind of what led me on this five or six year journey of just looking at how people are currently managing concussions what the industry of massage therapy is doing or not doing and then just recently within the last six months I've launched a course in, in kind of as a conclusion of what I've been looking at and uh, outside of clinical practice I teach um, I'm on faculty at Mohawk teach there 
I've taught for about 13 years as well. Mm-hmm. And then I teach kind of a, uh, across the country as well on weekends. So right on. just a little bit of everything. Cool. I like it. Where do you want to start with concussions? Even before concussions, what got you into teaching? Like what made you decide, I want to teach? You know, it was one of those things where you you get offered an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I was, I was in my mid-20s and... I was just kind of like, okay, I'll yeah. try it. No idea whether I was going to be good at it or not. And then, um, so are you good at it? I think I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, uh, I think I, I scratched the surface. As you know, when you're in the teaching industry, you're always trying to learn and become better. Yep. And I think uh, I would say in the last maybe two or three years, I feel like I've hit a stride. Only now, mm-hmm. I feel like in the first decade, you're doing this. Depending upon who you're teaching to, you're you're just always trying to perfect your craft. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah. so I would say in the last couple of years, I feel pretty comfortable, and I've been speaking more outside of just the public and private college stuff and speaking to larger groups of professionals. And, and so I, th- I think I'm okay. Do you prefer that formal teaching or do you prefer the continuing education and the speaking? I, uh, <laughs> I don't want to get you fired either. Eh? <laughs> For me, I prefer the, the continuing education. Yeah. I, I like when people have had the opportunity to start to establish a way of practice mm-hmm. and then reevaluate that. I think that there's there's a lot of value in there that when you're teaching young, young professionals or, or people coming up, they haven't had an opportunity to quite establish what they think, what they see as a niche or or even what they what they don't know. Right. You know what I mean? They're so new to it that they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. So when you have an opportunity to learn that like what I was like, for instance, for me, five, six years into my career, I start getting these injuries coming in, concussions, and I have no idea what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I'll admit it, like no idea what I'm doing, what I'm ma- how I'm managing these these people, whether what I'm doing is appropriate or, or inappropriate, and the advice that I'm giving them, whether it's current or not current. So that's what kind of got me into it. The field of triathlons, as you know, very predictable. It's repetitive strain injury over and over and over. You can manage volume. Uh, and the thing I like about concussion is completely complicated, regardless of whether you know you think it's going to progress smoothly. It often doesn't. Uh, it's very, very complex. But I, I like the ability to take something that's super complex and try and break it down into its simplest parts and then build it back up. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a roundabout answer to what you asked about teaching. But so the, the real answer is you fucking hate dealing with students. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm For kidding. all my students listening, <laughs> I did not say that. I'm kidding. Yeah, that was. <laughs> that was me. That was me. My name is Amanda. That was me. Let's start with basic definitions of things. How about that? Yeah. Let's get everybody on the same playing field as to what we're talking about with concussions, what we're talking about with concussion assessment, what we're talking about with injury management, that type of thing. I think it's really important to start with just a basic definition of the understanding of what concussion is yeah. and what concussion isn't. Uh, concussion is a, a mechanical brain injury uh, that creates abnormal physiology in the brain at its at its basic sense. Concussion is not the brain has swollen, the brain is bleeding, the skull is fractured. While these are injuries that happen to the brain, these are significantly more um, severe injuries falling into the moderate to severe category of brain injury, mm-hmm. whereas concussions considered to be a mild traumatic brain injury. So there's some mechanical event that creates impact on the brain that causes the brain at a microscopic level to twist, stretch, and or swell at the microscopic level, not the entire brain. And that causes an abnormal physiological event or sequence of events following that uh, that we consider to be concussion. The other thing is that you don't have to lose consciousness to have a concussion. Mm -hmm. If you lose consciousness, you have almost certainly got a concussion or worse, and you also don't have to hit your head to get a concussion. So if you slip or fall or uh, even get hit and it creates that whiplash effect 
which creates what we know as a coup contra coup Mm -hmm. injury where the brain hits one side of the head, left or right, front or back, that can cause a concussion as well. So typically when you go through like a rotatory pattern of movement, you might be at risk of something a little bit more substantial than if you go front to back. So like a you know, football player getting hit and then rotating the head right. versus car accident front to back. I mean, that's assuming that all things were equal. Mm-hmm. You know, concussion in terms of the symptoms is is very complicated. They can range from something as simple as a headache to nausea, vomiting, dizziness, vertigo, mood disorder, sleep disturbance. But In its basic form, it's a mechanical event on the brain that changes the physiology of the brain. So can I ask the most basic question then? If somebody has some sort of injury to their head, what is sort of the that first sign that would tell somebody you need to go get checked if you have a concussion and or how is a concussion diagnosed? How can we for sure say somebody has had a concussion? It's a really good question, really difficult one to answer. Um, So going back to the symptoms of concussion being like headache, nausea, dizziness and vomiting, well, you can have all those symptoms and not have a concussion, Mm -hmm. right? Like just because you have a headache, it doesn't mean that you have a concussion. You know, there are, in terms of the acute phase of concussion management, there are tools that are used to assess for concussion. So validated tools like the SCAT-5, which is a sport concussion questionnaire, which looks at a variety of things from balance to what the eyes are doing, what the vestibular system is doing, to what the what memory um, is doing, counting backwards or remembering certain things. From that tool, the physician who's diagnosing the concussion would come come to the conclusion that I believe that there is a concussion based on this assessment. In saying that, their concussion within the first four days is very unpredictable, where people can hit their head and be perceivably fine on immediate sideline assessment. And then 72 hours to four days later, they start to get a headache or they start to get eye strain or something like that. There's some evidence to say that 85% of people that suffer a concussion will have some sort of issue with the eyes. And that often takes three weeks to settle in. Mm -hmm. So going back to your question, like in the, in the, in the acute phase of sport, it's, it's difficult to assess, but I think the, the best practice is you know, this adage of when in doubt, sit the player out or remove the player from sport, especially in youth sports under the age of 18, because there's risk of something called second impact syndrome, which is a sort of controversial pathology where if you get a subsequent hit to the head and you've already had a concussion, then there are cases of death and and most of the deaths that are are reported are uh, under the age of 18. So is this a practice that's actually followed pretty strictly that when in doubt, sit them out? Or do you think more coaches are likely to say like, eh, seems fine. You know, we asked some questions, seems okay, back in play. I think that might depend a lot on the level of sport. Mm -hmm. Is there medical teams in place? And I'm just spitballing shit here. Stuff like that. Like, for example, your fucking Little League baseball game, there's no athletic therapist there. Mm -hmm. And the coach isn't a leveled coach of the National Coaching Certification Program. It's some dude whose kid plays on the team he doesn't know anything versus when you get to college level high school Mm -hmm. even that type of thing yeah for sure i feel like but what connor was saying with majority of these deaths from what is it second impact syndrome Mm -hmm. being in young athletes i would assume with the youngest athletes we would be exceptionally cautious and i i guess that depends on on the coach maybe yeah there's there's a few 
uh, as Mark alluded to, there's a few issues with that. I think at the a sport at the highest level, you're not really concerned about athletes as much because, you know, the NHL and the NFL and they all have spotters now. They've yep. got the best care. They're in the best shape. They've got the best physicians. But at the ground level of sport, is like was said if uh if you've got people in youth sport there's a couple of issues there you've got usually a trainer who's taken a training course and no knock to training courses but they're often not medical professionals right and then do you want to be the trainer that tags somebody else's child with a concussion because that person then has to go through sitting Mm -hmm. out and there's one you know if there's one thing that i've noticed which is a really interesting series of events is that when i talk to groups of people or parents about concussions i often am not that well received there's this sort of stigma parents don't want their child to have a concussion of course of course not but why but are there you is a lot of well there received? is a, there is quite a bit of denial like um in terms of uh you know if if school boards for example school boards have their protocols in place or or industries a lot of them have protocols in place and i and i'm not here to judge specific protocols but in my opinion, you can always improve on protocols with what the current evidence and literature is saying. And some people just don't want to hear it. They're just sort of they're just sort of like, we have our protocol mm-hmm. and that's okay. But there's lots of research on underreporting of athletes and sport culture. So like in the NCAA, you know, you might get say eighteen to twenty percent of athletes that are actually reporting their self their their concussions, but then there are a group of athletes that just aren't reporting them. Mm-hmm. Because they don't want to lose their spot on the team. Of course, like yeah. I, I've, you don't you don't want to lose your spot on your team. You don't want to lose the opportunity of growing pro. Like there's so many variables in the mix. For all you know, there's there's an endorsement deal waiting on the other mm-hmm. end of that fence. Hence why I have a client who had seven concussions, and you know it, it took up to seven before she finally realized because she's an I athlete. I need to stop playing. She's an athlete and that's the only thing she knows yeah. how to be. That's the only thing she is. And if she stops playing, then who the fuck am I? Yeah. I don't know who I am. Now I've got a fucking identity crisis to go along with my concussion. No, thank you. I'll take the concussion and play my sport. Mm-hmm. But those, a lot of those symptoms you were saying is what she was telling me. Um, she was having vision problems. Um, this feeling, I feel I wish I could remember exactly how she described it, but she said it was almost like there was this buzzing feeling around her entire body, like all the time, everything mm-hmm. she did, you know, she's driving and it's like this, this halo of buzzing around her. Like buzzing or like vibrating? She described it as buzzing, but mm-hmm. maybe vibrating. Okay, I'm just curious. I'm just curious. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about why mm-hmm. that may be happening. But I think sport culture is huge too, you know, football, rugby, shake it off, ring your bell, mm-hmm. uh, suck it up. Mm-hmm. Um, still a lot of that. And and while there is strides in ed- in education, uh, if you've got people that are really grounded in sport culture, then they will ignore symptoms. And uh, like in in my opinion, if you've rung your bell, uh, you don't really know what that's turned into. People use the word like in in mixed martial arts or boxing. I got my bell rung. Mm-hmm. The reality of it is, you've had a concussion mm-hmm. almost almost always. And so, what are you doing about that? Do you think that you've got your bell rung because because of sport culture, and you're just carrying on getting hit in the head during the course of that fight or match, uh, or do you go back to training two days later because you know, you still have a headache and you just think you got your bell rung. Like, what is what is that for you? And what is the people around you and what have they learned in the sport growing up? 
So, you know, that, that still is, is an issue. It's getting better with, with education. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's one of, the, one of the topics is why are we getting so much better at recognizing concussion? Are we getting so much better because our recognition tools are becoming better? Are we just getting better because there's more education on it so people are coming and, and reporting symptoms? Mm-hmm. Because the thing about concussion is often your physical neurological exam is normal and it should be normal. So when you look at things like examining the cerebellum or examining the cranial nerves, like there shouldn't really be any huge red flags there because if there are red flags that's something more substantial like it could be a, a slow bleed it could be a cerebellar injury it could be a, an injury to the cranial nerve because of just the sheer force that the person's gone through so you shouldn't really see anything there mm-hmm. and so if you do all that and it's normal then there isn't really any anything physical you're gonna see right which is sort of the the complexity of it and the issue of it so is this part of the reason why there is are concussions? like underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed frequently because there isn't just a very easy way to say you have a concussion? I would say yes, uh, they are. I don't I don't know if I would use the word undiagnosed or misdiagnosed, but there, there are definitely misses. And often you will hear the word, you'll hear the word or somebody will come in to see me and they'll say, I have a mild concussion or I've been told I have a mild concussion. All concussion is, is a mild traumatic brain injury. And within the concussion it's neither mild moderate nor severe it's there's you, no grading with it's, concussions? It's you have a concussion and we you don't really know whether it's mild moderate or severe until you've seen it through mm-hmm. right? right so it's based on prognosis so if i if i take somebody and i say well you've got a mild concussion but then they've got uh, a history of a mood disorder so they've got uh you know history of bipolar disorder and that's been flared up as a result of the concussion They've got a history of migraine headaches that have also been flared up. And uh, now all of a sudden they're getting sleep disturbances. And that goes on for two years. Well, that wasn't a mild concussion. Right. Uh, And then you take some people that are in the perceivably, if you want to characterize as moderate, where they've lost consciousness or they've thrown up at that time. And they're good to go in 14 days. Mm -hmm. So it's just you have a concussion. Let's try and manage it properly. Mm -hmm. There are telltale signs that someone may have a drawn out prognosis based on things like history. So if you've had prior concussions, and this is more anecdotal and somewhat loosely in in the evidence as well, the the magic number being three. So around sort of three, it may become more complicated. If you've had many concussions at a young age, that may also be complicated because while we used to think that the pediatric brain was more resilient, we understand now that it's not in terms of its developing. So youth concussions can be more substantial. When you say more substantial, do you mean like greater effects because they're not finished developing or the effects are going to be longer lasting, a combination of both? Potentially both. Okay. Yeah. So potentially longer term. The the recovery process for a a youth concussion should be longer than an adult. An adult. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the brain is, you know, frontal lobes usually develop between or done developing between 21 and 23. So if you look at the adult brain, the soonest that someone could get back from a concussion, like let's say they get a concussion on day zero, you're talking about your NHL player, typically the soonest they'll get back is a, about eight to 10 days if you follow the protocols properly. And then there's some in a youth concussion, you're looking at more often than not three to four weeks minimum. I I am under the opinion that most youth concussions should be out for a minimum of a month. Why? Because I always err on the side of caution. And I just think, why not? 
and a lot of the evidence, like from Canchild, which is at a University of McMaster, which does a lot of research on pediatric concussion, will look at how long have, has the child had symptoms for, and then base the recovery on how long have they had the symptoms for. So what, have they become asymptomatic within a week or two weeks? And the longer that they've had symptoms for, the longer that they're kept out for. Okay. So like if they've had symptoms for four weeks, they're usually kept out for three months. Like, let's say they become asymptomatic at week three and a half, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, that child's going to be out th three months. Whereas if they've become asymptomatic within a week, then usually they're the, the longest period of time would be about four weeks. And that's assuming that the parents don't want to keep them out longer. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I've had conversations with people sort of similar to yourself where I'll be presenting and just talking about what I do. And then a parent will look at me and say, well, I think I know a lot about concussion. My child's 16 and they've had seven concussions. And that's kind of like an oxymoron to me because if you take any 16-year-old athlete like we just talked about and you, and you say to them, oh, you have a headache, but do you want to play hockey tomorrow? Every single one of them is going to say yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Because if they play AAA hockey or they're passionate about their sport, like you said, that's how they, they identify. Every single one of them is going to say yes. Of course. And it's, so it's not the responsibility of the, the child. It's the responsibility of the parent to make a decision on behalf of the child for the betterment of their future. Mm -hmm. And while it might not be the popular decision at the time, it is the right decision in terms of you know brain development and what the research would say. And that's not really a popular opinion, but, mm -hmm. and again, it's not for us to, as our, as therapists, it's not really for us to return them to sport because number one, we can't diagnose anyway. And number two, they all need physician clearance to return to their sport. But if you could have that conversation between the, the entire team that's managing them, then that's where the best results come from. You know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily scared of concussions. I'm scared of improperly managed concussions. I thought you were going to say parents. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not, I don't have any kids. So I'm, not, I'm not making any judgment on parenting. Again, it's it's about education. It's about what the the literature currently says, mm -hmm. and, and it does say that generally speaking, children should be kept out longer than adults if you've had a a brain injury. Can you educate me a little bit about? There's two questions I have for you. I mean, we're all RMTs in this room. You became really interested in learning about concussions because you're working with athletes. So my assumption is you wanted to know more because you wanted to know if there's stuff that you can do for them, correct? Correct. And in doing all this research and learning more, do you feel like you've got the tools and the know-how to be able to help an athlete who's dealing with a concussion before you answer that you kind of said before what what kind of made you go on this path is because you had a bunch of clients come in that had concussions and you're like i don't know if i know what i'm doing and blah 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 blah. tell me what you were doing with them and then tell me at the end of all of this stuff that you've now brought yourself up to speed for were you right were you wrong were you on the right track when i was treating them before i i don't really feel like i was doing much of anything for them okay. i would i would come in and i would i would assess them like i would a whiplash patient mm -hmm. so i would i would try and grade their whiplash as one two or three right. and then i would uh, treat the findings that i would see in the cervical spine and that was pretty much it okay and um and so yeah i, I really i didn't really feel I, I didn't feel confident at all and uh it would only frustrate me more because I wasn't really getting, if, if I'm being honest, I wasn't really getting really anywhere with them. Mm -hmm. But I just kind of thought like, oh, this is what concussions are, right? Like they take a long time to heal. So I can't really, I can't really do much, I guess. And let's be honest, like the, 
until Sidney Crosby got injured, no one really knew much about concussions, right? Like there are a few, few schools uh, in the U.S., like University of Pittsburgh was an emerging university at the time in concussion research. And the University of Buffalo is really doing some great work and always has in concussion research. But since that time, and probably in the last 10 to 15 years, the, the research has just exploded where you can't even keep up with the amount of papers that are published. So that's where I was back then. And I guess you were asking me, now that I look back, was I doing anything of value? Yeah. I mean, very little. Mm, okay. And now? Uh, now I feel like I'm, I'm on my way to doing a lot more. So one of the reasons why I'm doing this is there's a couple of reasons. I think as RMTs, uh, we are becoming the first line of healthcare a lot more. Now, where if somebody's back sore, the chances of them going to see their family doctor for that initially is seldom now, right? Like there's a lot more people that are coming to us because they hurt their back. Mm -hmm. right? Or because or, they have a headache or, or because, yeah, right. anything, any kind of ache or pain, they're here. So they're, they're using us as kind of like a first line of healthcare. So I, you know, when I s see that, I feel like we need to be better at screening for things that are outside of our scope of practice. And I don't think we're really that or i know i'll speak on my own behalf i was not good at that mm -hmm. so it's it's like i never you know would look for really red flags or do a neurological exam because i would always assume that someone else was doing it i would always assume if there was a physio treating that they were doing it or if they went to see their doctor they were doing it but then when i started asking patients about what was getting done it w it wasn't really getting done. Mm -hmm. And and the more complex an injury period, whether it's a chronic pain patient, chronic low back pain, chronic radicular pain, the more complex something becomes, the more the buck gets passed. Oh, for sure. Where they go, well, I assume that the physio did it, so I'm not going to, because it's super complex, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't want to take the majority of the the onus upon myself to try and figure this out. And, um, you know, I, I taught the my first course in... Uh, in St. John about a month ago uh, to 30 RMTs on the East Coast. On the second day, brought in a patient to do like a live assessment. So like a two-hour live kind of case study. On the first day, we tr we talk about kind of the system and what we're doing. And then we assess the patient on day two. And so part of the assessment is looking at, you know, is this does this person have red flags that have gone amiss, right? Like it's while people, while concussion is important, not having a concussion is also important. If, if you have something else going on that falls out of the realm of concussion but presents similar to it, I also need to try and figure that out, mm -hmm. right? So this gentleman, uh, you know, had uh, a blood pressure of uh, over 160 systolic plus, was seeing uh, six to eight images at rest, so resting multiple vision. Uh, had had high cholesterol that was untreated, smoked 15 cigarettes a day, you know, a number of other red flags for cardiovascular disease. And he didn't have a, he didn't have a family doctor and he hadn't been to see the family doctor in three years. And so it's just, you know, on the checklist of the health history form, you never get past box one because it's like, does this person have a number of red flags? Yes, they do. Refer to the physician. Mm -hmm. If I now just don't do that and I just make the assumption that they've seen their family doctor, they've seen somebody else, and I just say, hop on hop on the table. So kind of going back to my point about the course was some of the therapists, when they went back to their clinics, were really excited about this, sort of this new system, quote unquote, that they have. And some of the other therapists in other disciplines, and I'm not knocking the other disciplines because I think it was just more the, the people themselves, not the disciplines, sort of said, well, you kind of have no business in 
in managing these patients or treating these patients. And my message there is, well, what you were doing was substantially more dangerous before, right? If you're not doing any management or you're not trying to attempt to assess a patient and you're just sort of like jump on the table, then there's so much more that you can miss. Yeah, like you're not making a claim as an RMT that, oh, you have a concussion, come to me, I can fix you. Not at all. It's understanding what's going on with that person having the knowledge, and then being a part of them managing the symptoms. You're not curing, curing in air no. quotes, concussions. No, I think part of the course is recognizing what we can do, mm-hmm. recognizing what we cannot do, but then also having the knowledge to make the appropriate referrals to the appropriate people and being able to being able to be part of the language in a confident way and sort of saying like, these are the symptoms that I found based on my exam, which are, you know, classic signs and symptoms of concussion. I'd appreciate it if you assess the patient or whatever, but at least being part of the conversation. And there are some very good systems that are out there uh, currently in, in Canada that are, are looking at managing concussion. A lot of them are centered around sport, which is great, but there are also plenty of of non-sport related concussion, slip and fall, workplace accident, car accidents are huge. So when you look at concussion, concussion is defined in three phases. A concussion, which is basically zero to 30 days. It used to be zero to 10 days, but it's zero to 30 now. Post-concussion syndrome, which is typically 30 days to three months-ish. And then following three months, you, you fall into the persistent post-concussive symptom category, which just means kind of chronic I was say these are these are just fancy acute subacute and chronic. Yeah. So yes. like chronic chronic pain is defined as three months or more. Persistent post concussive symptoms are defined as three months or more. The patient becomes perceivably more complicated as time goes on due to the fact that you know time has layers of everything. You know where where do they fall in that uh, in that part of the injury uh, cycle, and then what can we do about it? Uh, I think it's uh, really important to understand that and and what is happening is if you get the kids at the youth sport level or even the professional sport level they're all getting like we were talking about before they're all getting assessed on day zero Mm -hmm. so their outcomes are quite good or at least their management is good and it's persistent but if you get that car accident patient that has like a wad two and then three weeks in they're kind of like i feel a little off you know and 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 they might have gone in to see a therapist and they kind of they felt off from the beginning but the therapist was like well you you did you got in a car accident traveling at a high rate of speed but they didn't you know say that they had like a really bad headache or they didn't you know they didn't maybe indicate that they were they had these symptoms that made somebody think that then or they, they didn't even relate them together because mm-hmm. when it comes to anything neurological like you sometimes can't think like you know tingling over here or you know this buzzing sound I'm here and like you don't always link these things together right and that's and that's the thing it's not it's not for the patient to do right, right. the patient's never going to link it together that's our job to try and do is link it together or at least say this seems a little bit abnormal Mm -hmm. so let's take a a closer look or a deeper look at the systems that are often affected you know are there tools that we can use to try and assess that properly and then come up with a a conclusion as to we think this is where you're at and this is what needs to be done about it Mm -hmm. what is baseline concussion testing good question uh baseline testing is looking at the health of an athlete's brain in normal circumstances uninjured Okay. So 
the pop the most popular part of that would be like a computer-based test like impact testing there are other companies but impact being the most popular one looks at different components of the brain and then gives you measurable data on where it is at rest so they score you you know on a variety of things so let's just say you were at a just for simplistic you were at a nine out of ten at rest and then you get an in uh, and there are other types of baseline testing too there's the computer-based testing but then there's other physical tests like a reaction stick test where you grab a stick and how quickly you can grab it mm-hmm. a balance test called uh MBES. There's a test called King Devic test that looks at like how fast your eyes can track. So there's a whole bunch of tests and different people do different baseline tests based on just what they think is valid in the research. If that athlete then gets an injury, uh, they can't go back until they return to their baseline score. Okay. So if, if they come out of injury, you redo your baselines and let's say they're at like a four out of 10, just for simplicity's sake, they can't return until they're at a nine out of 10. How reliable do you feel baseline testing is? It's super controversial. Um, just based on what you just told me in that like simplified description of it, it sounds like there would be a lot of question marks. First of all, I think that having as much information around a patient is important. Mm -hmm. And I do think the more information you can have about a patient at their healthy state, I think is good. However, the one of the problems with baseline testing is is using baseline testing only as a form of management where kids come in. uh, So I've had Patients, for example, the kid comes in, gets a concussion, three weeks later passes the computer-based cognitive test, but is still symptomatic and is returned to play. Right. Doesn't really work. The assumption in the research is that if they are still symptomatic, they won't be able to pass the computer-based test. But that's not always the case. Which is not always the case. Right. So you can't always rely on computer-based testing. The other thing about computer- And that's just poor judgment. Yeah. Or that's just, hey, the computer says he can go back, so- he can go back. Poor judgment. And the other, so the other thing about computer-based testing is, um, and I'll be the first to admit this with like impact tests. I'd taken a couple courses on impact. The best people to read the impact test are neuropsychologists or neuropsychiatrists. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm not one of those. So I don't right. pretend to be that. And I think that if you if you're in an environment where you're running computer-based testing and you have, and it's the neuropsych group that's running it, then I think it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to pretend that I know how to operate at that level. So I, I think that running some of the more physical tests, like the King Devic test, which is just like eye tracking stuff or balance testing, reaction stick, I think those are good at baseline. I think that if you're going to run the true cognitive test, it should be managed by somebody that knows that. Absolutely. And, yeah. and what, what's happening now is there's a lot, you know, many clinics around. I'm sure you've seen them, you know, baseline testing, 50 bucks. And, yep. And everyone's running just the computer-based test and then using that as the sole means of return to play. Well, I had somebody actually ask me, um, a coach asked me, that she coaches uh, kids from age... I want to say nine to 18. And she asked me, do you do baseline concussion testing? And of course I said, no, because as I told you at the beginning, concussions are one thing I don't feel that I know that much about, although I'm learning. Yeah. I just, I was sort of surprised that she reached out to me, a massage therapist, like, Hey, do you do baseline testing? I felt like, shouldn't this be outside of my scope? Like, shouldn't this be, shouldn't it be a neuropsych? I don't know. It, It, it felt weird that she came to me about that. Do massage therapists do this? Is this something? I don't know many massage therapists that do, to be honest with you. I know a whole bunch of ATs that do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I know an AT that A does, small yeah. handful of physios, 
but I don't see a massage therapist even knowing that this exists, to be honest with you. Even, <laughs> even, even massage therapists with the sport massage <laughs> therapist certification, like I don't even think they do that stuff. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's becoming super popular because it is lucrative. Mm-hmm. It is very lucrative to run baseline testing for... 10 or 20 teams at the start of the season and you know that uh, then if they get a, an injury they're going to come to you for a subsequent series and somebody's going to get injured I think the utility of it is is good in theory I think practically there's still a long way to go in terms of trying to integrate it in a way that gets the most value out of it mm-hmm. and maybe looking at some of the other things that are being used that could be used in conjunction with some of the baseline testing like one of the things that we know is that if you have a loss of near point of convergence, so near point of convergence is when something draws towards your eyes, the minute you see double is when you've lost the ability to converge your eyes. Mm -hmm. So if I see an image and it's coming towards me and then I see two images, the eyes diverge out, the eyes get lazy, quote unquote, and that's why you see two. So a normal near point of convergence is usually between four and six centimeters. And we know that if you're outside of that range of four to six centimeters, in particular, if you're outside of 10 centimeter range, then that can cause issues just outside of concussion in mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. So we know if, if, if I was to test everyone at baseline at the start of the season and pick up on some of these kids that had near point of convergence losses, let's say they're at 15 centimeters. Well, I know in the research that that leads to a longer prognosis. So that might be valuable. Mm-hmm. Or if I know that I've tested convergence insufficiencies in all my athletes and they were four centimeters at the start of the season, they get a concussion, they come in, they're 25. That is a, a physical objective measure that I can now track, mm-hmm. right? I can look at, okay, well, your convergence insufficiency at the start of the year was this, and then I can track that every week. And I can say, you were at 25, you're at 10, and I can also take an average of three to sort of look at the capacity of the brain. How many bench presses can you do with your eyes? Like if you go... 2, 8, 12, you're failing because you're weak. You know, your eyes are weak, your brain's tired. So with every rep, I ask you to kind of cross your eyes, you're failing worse and worse. But then let's say at week three, you're 2, 3, 4. And then you go 3, 3, 3. And you can start to see that normalize. Mm-hmm. Then that's one of the few objective measures that I have where I can say it, see, it appears that you're improving. Whereas some of the other baseline stuff is only reliable within about a three to four day period, which means in the, in, in the literature, if you get them on day zero, you know, some, some of the baseline stuff will say, well, it's only valid within the first three days of injury, and then it loses its reliability. So the question becomes like, when is the athlete getting their subsequent baseline test? Are they getting it two weeks later? Are they getting it at day zero? Why is it less reliable? I, I mean, I somewhat understand this, but so for example, like you said, on day zero, you just have a concussion. You don't know what that's going to look like. Like there's no grading. If somebody were assessed on day five, mm-hmm. wouldn't it still show it like very, very large differences from their baseline if it was something that we should be very concerned about? Uh, it, so the answer is it depends. Uh, I think that if they're still if they're still experiencing physical symptoms, then the expectation is their baseline will be probably not normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the problem becomes is that when you're into the 
persistent or the post-concussive phase and their baseline still not normal, their baseline neurocognitive test, what are you going to do? Are you going to continue to just re-baseline them or are you going to start looking Mm -hmm. outside the box? So that just goes back to like it is a valuable tool, but it needs to be part of the part of the picture and interpreted properly by someone that's well versed in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know it just goes back to again, like you said, the the judgment thing, treating the patient as a patient, not as a computer program, right? And a and a score that's being spit out by something that they're doing. So you have developed a course. Talk to me about this. What is it that? What are you trying to teach other therapists about concussions? So the f- my first goal is to bring massage therapists well into the conversation and establish them as part of the primary care team, but also giving them the confidence to be part of the conversation and, mm-hmm. and being able to, I might not know the answers or might, I might not feel s- supremely confident at managing the patient just based on my experience or the fact that I haven't seen a lot of concussions, but at least I can speak with the chiros, the physios, the sport med docs, the osteos, the naturopaths, and be on the same level and have the same understanding. Mm -hmm. So that's goal number one. Goal number two is to have a pretty reasonable understanding of when to refer and who to refer to, and also have a reasonable understanding as to prior to the official diagnosis that yes, this probably is a concussion based on my assessment. Okay, so you're teaching people um, very practical things, like teaching them how to do assessments that maybe can give you an idea that, yes, this is possibly a concussion, where to refer to, like get really giving RMTs the confidence to know what they're looking for. And then is there any any uh, treatment approaches in this? Is there anything that you do as a therapist to help manage patients with concussions? For sure. How about I'll walk you through the course? Yeah. Well, don't, I mean, don't give everything. No, but I'll walk you through the general. So walk day, me through. day one, day two. So day one, we start off with the the whole morning is just refining neurological exam, just because I don't think a lot of massage therapists do it on a regular basis of regular, regular frequency. I agree with you. Yeah. So the first, you know, we go over how to assess the cerebellum, how to assess the cranial nerves for any injury, as well as looking at red flags that might be characteristic of like an upper cervical spine injury. Give me some examples. Uh, So facial numbness and tingling, inability to swallow, lump in throat, sort of your classic uh, vertebral artery signs and symptoms. Can I pause you really quick? Did you learn this stuff in school? Just out of curiosity. Concussions or? These these types of assessments. Did you learn these things in school? Oh, good question. While you think about that, did you learn these things in school? Like formal? Probably once for like 10 minutes. Yeah, Yeah. like I, I did. Did we dive into it that aggressively are you an athletic therapist as well no i'm not but i'm just curious if if this was also part of your formal massage therapy education i think there was probably some of it because it's not like i have no idea about neurological assessment but but you're also a kin so i mean yeah that's i don't know okay what about you did you learn this in massage school fuck i don't remember that was like 15 years ago (laughs) shit (laughs) (laughs) sorry completely that's okay yeah cerebellum Cerebellar exam is not really talked about a lot in the massage no. yeah. industry. So where you're looking at, is there an injury to the cerebellum or the mini brain? Is there like a small bleed there that's gone on that's, that's maybe been affected? So we, we talk about that quite a bit. We talk about 
cranial nerve exam and seeing whether there's been damage to a cranial nerve, a pre-existing cranial nerve injury that's gone amiss and perpetuated the symptoms that they're now feeling, Mm -hmm. or maybe a small bleed, as well as some other red flags that, again, are related to things outside of concussion. Like I had a gentleman a couple years ago came in, he had hit his head six months prior, fell into the persistent category, did my full neurological exam, it was flawless, his blood pressure was in the 170s. And so the it's sort of like go back. He had been to his family doc. Family doctor's like, oh, you hit your head, you have a concussion, never took any vitals, sent him away. Again, just because you hit your head, it doesn't mean that now the issues that you have are because you hit your head six months ago. Right. You have high blood pressure. The high blood pressure was pre-existing. Yeah. And so his only, his only complaint was he had visual disturbances. He had sort of floaties in his vision, which is a characteristic sign of metabolic disease, mm-hmm. pre prediabetes, and high blood pressure. Yep. So I kind of, we start the day not even really thinking about concussion necessarily. We're looking at just a very thorough health history and a thorough neurological exam. And then we talk about dermatomes, myotomes, deep tendon reflexes uh, to assess the peripheral nervous system, some other reflexes to assess the central nervous system. After lunch, we go into more of a focal concussion exam. So the eye concussion, the systems that are usually affected are either the eyes or the oculomotor system, the vestibular system, or the autonomic nervous system, which is almost always affected in the acute phase, but can persist beyond the acute phase. And so different systems present a little bit differently. Like the eyes, the patient will complain of fogginess a lot of the time, and mm-hmm. then aggravations with screens and texting. Um, math class seems to be one that's classically really bothersome for the eyes. Driving. Vestibular symptoms present a lot more like when I'm in, when I'm in a busy place, I get really aggravated. Malls, grocery stores, that type of thing. More autonomic symptoms are mood, anxiety, depression, sleep, irritability, inability to focus, frustration, that type of thing. So we talk about the eyes and the vestibular system in the first two hours after the in the afternoon. And then the next three hours, I talk about like, where is the research on things? Like, do you have to sit in a dark room for two weeks and wait? And there's no real evidence to support that past, you know, not even a dark room, but resting beyond 24 hours. There's no evidence to really support that that is helpful. In fact, early cardiovascular exercise is brain saving. Mm. So people have to get up and moving in a controlled manner, usually within the first four days. Anecdotally, this just makes sense to me. It's like I used to work with a chiropractor that any person that had almost any injury, her advice was always rest, rest, rest. And they would come to me and I would quietly say to them, no, move, move, move. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's not always about rest. And we see that with everything now, right? Like, right. Think about the way that surgery was done 25 years ago. Like if you did, if you had Harrington rods put in for scoliosis, it was like you're on bed rest for four months. Well, now they're like up and walking within hours of surgery. So we know that like active recovery is really, really important. And University of Buffalo is basically the mecca for that, looking at heart rate guided, what's known as sub-symptom threshold activity. So you always, if these are your symptoms, you always want to be here. Mm-hmm. And you always want to be under the threshold of your symptoms performing exercise. But you don't want to go into this symptomatic area because then that becomes detrimental to your progress. Right. Uh, we talk about you know, the importance of sleep, whether you should nap or not, whether, you know, if you're at school, what are some accommodations or resources that the massage therapist can refer to to help people with planning and pacing? What does, what are supplements that are popularly used? Not that that's within our scope of practice, but it's again, important to recognize what is the research talking about with respect to supplements 
who are the appropriate people? So like naturopaths or physicians. So people have, again, resources. What is the endocrine system doing? What are, you know, there's some thought about hormonal influence on persistent concussions. Mm -hmm. In females that are perimenopausal, even in males as young as 18, there have been some reported issues with low testosterone. So we really just talk about evidence for like three hours and what does it say? So at the end of that day, you have a lot of information, but you have a lot of resources and a lot of knowledge to provide to your patients. The beginning of day two, we look at rehab for the systems that we talked about in day one. Then we bring in a patient for two hours. And then in the afternoon, we do four hours, which is headache and cervical spine's influence on concussion which is all looking at the types of headache and what those mean, and then assessing, treating, and rehabbing the cervical spine. Why isn't this part of a fucking massage therapy curriculum? Why isn't it? Why isn't it, Mr. Still Working in Formal Education Man? <laughs> yeah, I... Stop trying to get him fired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. I think, well, it kind of is, but not packaged in the way yeah. that I'm packaging it i guess i mean there is some stuff that's not in the formal system i know but why it's not i really do like not i i can't say this for sure but we all know we can't diagnose right okay. and i think there's certain things that are very much brushed over in massage school that like we understand what it is we understand you know some of the signs and symptoms and we understand that it's outside of our scope to refer out and i think concussions have always been looked at that way with massage therapy education that yeah we have to know what it means but if somebody has a concussion, we're not treating that. We are referring them out. And so maybe that's why it's not looked at in such detail. But I love the fact that you've created this course because just as you said, like when I have patients come to me, I've got a few athletes that I treat. And when I have people come to me who have had multiple concussions, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really have much to say. You know, I do, as you said, like I, I kind of work on you know, the cervical spine and the injuries, but I don't really even think about the concussion and all of all of the other things that have come along with it, because I've always kind of looked at it as, yeah, I'm not the expert in that. And that's sort of out of my scope. And, you know, my assumption, which I guess now I shouldn't be assuming is you're dealing with that with your primary care provider, which, mm -hmm. as you said, might possibly be me. So I mm -hmm. should know more. Yeah. And and the reality of it is, is if it's the the if the, if it's the physician that is signing off and i'm again i'm not talking about uh sport organizations or programs that are already doing this because again there are some really good programs that are doing this where a physician will oversee and there's a number of groups chiro physio massage they all collectively come together they go back to the physician there's intermittent assessing i'm talking about small town you know maybe family docs that don't have the resources uh, and there's only a couple of clinics and, and the person's just told rest more, wait, keep waiting. It's been two years, wait longer. Mm. These things take time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's just not, it's just not good enough. Telling someone to wait longer is not, that's not healthcare, right? Like if I just telling them to wait is just not like, what does that do for the patient? I don't know, but I feel it's our healthcare system. Wait longer, lose weight. Stop being so stressed. I think that... Here's some pills. Go away. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's the healthcare system that I know. I think that we need to be able to give... And there is a men, there is a huge mental health component to this where the longer this goes on, there almost always is an anxiety piece, whether it's yes. there's a, pres a present mood disorder or not. The question becomes as well, 
if this has been going on for two or three years, is there anything physical left? And have they just developed a post-concussive anxiety disorder right. that are and, that's and how driving can you not? If you have this prolonged period of your life where you just don't feel normal and nobody's giving you anything other than rest, wait longer. Yeah, you injured your brain. Yeah, of course it's going to be like that. Of course you're going you you mentally have to become a different person because nothing is normal anymore. Like that's that's an actual mind fuck. That's what a concussion is. Well, there, beca- there, there becomes just a huge psychosocial component. You should let me drink before we bring the mics out. It's just like any anything, right? Any of this chronic pain science and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Talking about psychosocial factors to pain, it's it's no different. And so at the end of it, while you leave the weekend with a whole bunch of information, you're somewhat overwhelmed because this is new and maybe you're not familiar with it. Mo- the majority of the people feel pretty they feel armed with a lot of valuable tools and and a an approach that they can work their way through and then basically at the end of it look at their assessment form and be pointed in a direction and sort of say this box is circled i should start here mm-hmm. And whether and make you know they've got thought trees at the end of the weekend about like making appropriate referrals based on what box they're in and and how to navigate themselves so they are again becoming part of the conversation not just saying hop up on the table how do you feel this week oh, I feel the same and it's kind of like you do what I did where you just kind of go home frustrated and throw your hands up and do the same thing next week and the patient doesn't get any better yeah hmm. that's the worst feeling for me and I guess any any therapist out there that really cares about their practice and their patients and want wants to actually see progress. The worst feeling is when somebody comes back and there's zero change. I I don't like that feeling. So having at least the know-how, as you said, to be able to, if you have to refer out, but knowing where to refer out and knowing what the problems might be, that's really empowering. It's not just throwing your hands up and saying, okay, I'm going to massage you now. And at least knowing, you know, the big three in concussion is is sleep, headache, mood. Those are the big three. When you when you talk about concussion, you want to know whether it's a post-concussive headache, whether they're having issues with sleep because sleep is the most brain-saving thing that we have and how are their sleep patterns? Do they have a history of sleep disorder? And do they have a present or past mood disorder that has gotten worse as a result of the brain injury that they were medicated for? And how has that evolved during the context of this current period of time that they're in? And so do they need to be remedicated? Do they need to go back to a therapist? Is this something they haven't talked to their physician about, but they're now talking to you about it? And do you need to make the appropriate referral back? Is this somebody that's embarrassed about that mm-hmm. and doesn't really want to bring it up? Uh, are, they, are they having some hormonal influence? Are they male that has erectile dysfunction since their concussion? They don't want to talk about it. So they haven't told anybody. Or they had this before, they had an underlying cardiovascular condition, and that's how it was presenting, and and they're not talking about it because they're embarrassed. If you have the recognition to ask the, the questions, then it's going to bring that up in, in the context of the just the patient interview, and, and it opens up the conversation. I want to take this course. Tell me about it. When's the next time? Where are you offering it? Wait, wait, wait. Do you like being the concussion guy? Yeah, I really do. What about being the concussion guy do you really like? Is it because no one else is the concussion guy? No, there's lots of concussion people out there that are doing Okay, the concussion job. RMT guy. <laughs> uh, I, I really like it because it's just, I know people say like no injury is the same. Like you sprain an ankle and you... And, you know, you'll get 10 people sprained ankles and they're all different. But this is just so, so complex. What's well, your brain? It 
like literally not a single concussion can present the same. I feel like they're no. going to be so there's going to be so much variance because people are so different. And yes, it goes with the physiology and the ankle and whatever. But no, it's not. It's your brain. And the other thing I like, too, is you can have cases that are two years old, three years old. Obviously, going back to the point about your brain, it creates so much turmoil. If you don't feel the way they used to feel, you don't feel right and you get mm -hmm. frustrated with that. And the longer it goes on, you just get more and more frustrated. But if you have people that are two years in and within a couple of months, you can get rid of all those symptoms or substantially reduce them by, say, 70 or 80%, then that just makes their life so much easier and just so much better. And granted, you see that in all injuries and all pain. But for me, it's just with the brain, it's just a little bit sweeter, I think. So before we talk about your course, then, do you have a standout success story when it comes to concussions? Um, Standout success story. Not to put on the spot or I anything. Do, I do have one, like one uh, gentleman that I've been working with for some time, and he was in pretty bad shape. He had gotten hit by a car while riding his bike. And uh, like I've been seeing him for probably over a year. And sometimes it does take that long, depending upon how significant the injury was. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you see these people from day zero where they're off work, and sometimes they're off work for eight months. And you kind of talk them through that, and you get to you know, if you're seeing them on a regular basis, weekly or biweekly, there's a lot to be said by the patient in that time as they, you know, they're not in work and they're becoming frustrated as a part of that. And there's a lot of kind of personal information that they're divulging. And then as you see them get out of the fog and make those steps forward, uh, it's just really, really rewarding. And then once they go back to work and, you know, he was just so grateful when he went back to work, you realize just the simple things that people take for granted and like how much that means to them. Like, I just want to be able to go back to work and be a teacher. Mm -hmm. Right. So he, you know, he comes to mind quite a bit and I would, I would say for me, that's the biggest one, but any of them I think are, are really rewarding for me. I just get a, when it, I don't know why I like it so much, but it's just something that, it, you know, when you find your passion, you find then that niche market that you really enjoy treating. I feel like I finally found it after however many years it took me for seven or eight. That's so awesome. This is not really on the topic of concussions, but you made me think of this. Uh, we're having work done to our bathroom right now. And so one of the contractors today, um, he heard me say something about being a therapist. And he said, oh, you're a therapist? I said, I'm a massage therapist. He said, oh, I thought you were talking about like psychotherapy. I said, no, no. I'm like, I'm I'm pretty good at fixing broken bodies, but broken brains, I don't know. But you totally can help fix broken brains. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I told you I could make anything funny. <laughs> so fucking hokey. <laughs> but the brain isn't broken. It's not broken. It's not broken. That's the thing is, uh, you know, because of this great thing called neuroplasticity, you know, even if you look at stroke rehab, where stroke rehab used to be 30 years ago, where they basically you'd have a stroke and, and that, that was it, right? You just, you just wait and you just plateau. And now stroke rehab is amongst the most aggressive rehab that there is, right? That was one of the best volunteer positions I ever had. When I was in university, I took a job um, as a volunteer at a senior stroke rehab group. And 
it was like one of the best things I've ever done. And I mean, it was the simplest things we would do, like simple, like sitting in a circle and throwing balls into different like baskets in the middle of the circle and creating a whole game of it. It it, Mm -hmm. it was these simple things, but like actually watching all of the patients get really excited about like being able to throw this object into this basket right in front of it was really awesome and that's the thing the the whole process while the while it's complicated is really just broken down into simple parts Mm -hmm. and when i was talking about that convergence insufficiency earlier when you start measuring it with a patient they want to know what it is every single time they come in yeah for sure they want to see the progress if it was 25 and now it's you know 17 or 16 they're pumped. The other thing about brain injury is often as somebody gets better, it becomes perceivably worse to them. And the reason that that is, is if you have an acute concussion, everything feels horrible. You've got a headache, you're foggy, you're sleep deprived, you're anxious, you're depressed. As you come out of that, you have moments of clarity. So then when your symptoms dial back in, they seem like they're so much worse because you've had this period of calm. Whereas before you were just in the trenches and everything was bad. Well, and I also feel like if some of the sy- symptoms maybe decrease, but then some of them aren't decreasing as quickly, those ones that are not decreasing as quickly seem that much worse because why is this lingering? Why is this not getting better? But it might be just not just not at the rate that you want it yeah, to be. Yeah, it's very much like a layer of an, an onion, sorry, like you said, where as one thing clears up, something else becomes more prominent. Mm -hmm. And I always encourage people to kind of go after the most prominent symptom driver, which might be the eyes, might be the balance, this might be the cervical spine. But you're right, certain things will level off, other things will become more prominent, and then you might shift back to another system. And so you can't just do the same thing all the time because that's not the way that it works. It's really dependent upon the stage of injury, where they're at in their process, what system's affected, you know, blood flow in the brain, all that type of jazz either of you gentlemen ever had a concussion luckily i've not knock on wood no me either so i can't imagine though like you said even something as simple as just getting sick when you don't feel yourself like everything else becomes difficult it's it's just impossible to function normally when any part of your normal is off so having this yeah, all of these neurological symptoms going on and, you know, vision disturbances, sleep disturbances, mood disturbances. I, I can't imagine how horrible that is for somebody. Yeah. Patients just need to be empowered to try and do the best they can and, again, work within their sub-symptom threshold if there is one. But mm-hmm. then often you're right in that acute phase, which for some people can last the 30 days. Uh, a lot of that is driven by what's going on in the brain from a physiological standpoint. So the research shows that within day zero to 10, cerebral blood flow is reduced by quite a bit. And that can last up to 30 days in some people in some of the research. And so why you're having these symptoms is like when you disrupt the mechanics of the brain, it changes all the physiology, right? Like Mm -hmm. an action potential basically goes haywire and you have this super depolarization of the neuron cells, right? So if you think about just a normal action potential where it depolarizes, it's that on steroids where you have so much calcium running running into the cell, so much potassium leaving it that it causes the mitochondria to basically be sucked of energy because they're, it's trying to drive that ATP pump mm-hmm. to renormalize everything. So you go through this period of like hyperglycolysis where you're trying to create all this sugar to rebalance out the cell. 
And then you just go into this depressive stage. And because- Is this hyperglycolysis possibly the reason for the bzzz? Yeah, as well as like the fogginess and the, the yeah, that yeah. feeling. She described the fogginess, actually. So in the acute phase, it can be, if it's chronic or persistent, she probably has a high like autonomic component where she's in fight or flight mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And, you know, maybe she's got an- Maybe she's got a mood component and maybe stress management needs to be part of her program. Well, and she has a history of mood disorder. She she suffered with anxiety and depression yeah. before the concussions. Yeah. Because concussions. Yeah. Is her autonomic nervous system on threat already? One would argue probably yes. Mm-hmm. And then is it more on threat? Like is her threshold for threat less since this most recent concussion, mm-hmm. probably, and how do we get her back to baseline, you know, doing that. And a lot of the time, it is about patient compliance, because you're right, well, like, we can't go in and fix somebody's brain. Right. They have to listen to us, right? Yeah. If, you know, sub-symptom cardiovascular exercise is going to manage help manage their stress and you never exercised beforehand as part of your routine that's yeah, really tough to be that's like that's gonna be a tough one i need you on the treadmill 20 minutes a day at this heart rate you know do you have a heart rate monitor no do you have a treadmill no <laughs> do you exercise no it'll be one of those when they come back i tried to do the home care you gave me i did it once yeah yeah and it's just in the context of this injury it is really really important is it okay now if i get the details on connor's course yeah sorry i had a really warped flashback of something that i think i might have read or might have heard about the use of things like magic mushrooms and lsd as part of uh, experimental concussion care and i'm trying to fucking find it now on my phone rapidly. you're probably not wrong i mean the effects those drugs have on the brain it probably was something yeah. that was researched at some point yeah. Yeah, like I know they're being used for for anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, but I swear I read something about it related to concussions. There's there's sort of two big papers that talk about like the the metabolic cascade of events that happen after a concussion by a, a researcher called Giza in 2001-2014. And one of the things that he says in his papers is like when you have that initial event of the concussion happening, the neurotransmitter glutamate gets released more than it should. And when it binds to the cell, that's what causes all that calcium to rush in and all that because you're going into this hype. You're basically becoming hyper excitable and mm-hmm. then hyper depressed. And the majority of that research is is done in rats, but then they're extrapolating that into, into humans. And one of the things that he does mention in that paper is how they created a synthetic cannabinoid in mm-hmm. that research, which prevents the binding of glutamate in the acute phase to the neurotransmitter, oh. which in theory would then reduce the amount of calcium that would rush into the mm-hmm. cell and probably reduce the amount of magnesium that would leave the cell. So there, there's a lot of research on cannabinoids, like uh, high CBD oils and stuff yeah, coming yeah. in and yeah. being used in, t- in traumatic brain injury now as well, which is one of the thought processes. But uh, as for like psychedelics and LSD, I'm not really, I, I'm unaware. I just might not have read in, mm-hmm. into that research, but I know it's being used in like, in mental health disorders in general. Mm-hmm. Oh, I couldn't find what I was looking for. But, but. The, and then, but you do raise a good question as well about like self-medicating, which mm-hmm. is huge uh, when these people uh, have been in the persistent phase and they're using like things that either perpetuate anxiety or... Uh, things that perpetuate depression as part of their own treatment plan, but they've just kind of gone and sought it out as, as part of it. 
And if they've got a history of mood disorder, then it just kind of perpetuates a, a cycle as well. Just, you know, being able to talk frankly with them. And it's not our, it's not our job to, and I, this is one of the things that's going, you know, it's on trend in our, in our industry in general right now is the biopsychosocial sort of model of pain or whatever, right? And while that's important, it's also important to recognize that we, should, we're, we aren't all psychologists now. Right. We also, you know, like the biopsychosocial model of pain is really about the recognition that there's a psychological factor that I need to refer for. Absolutely. Yeah. Not, I don't We're do not, manual therapy yeah. <laughs> anymore and I sit and counsel my patient for an hour. Yeah. We are not psychotherapists. So the same is true for concussion. Just having the recognition. Yeah. You, you have a mood disorder and you're struggling with it. You know, have you talked to your physician about this? Oh no, I just, I just thought I was like anxious because of the concussion or whatever. I feel a little bit down, hand them a questionnaire and all of a sudden they're in the moderate to severe category of anxiety or depression, you can sort of say like, look, this is like a validated questionnaire and uh, you're scoring quite high on this. So let's send you back to your doctor and let's get this under control and have the resources available in terms of counseling locally. Would you hand out that questionnaire? Yeah, we can use questionnaires. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, are we blurring lines of scope of practice or is that okay? The way that I see it is all you're doing is giving the patient a questionnaire and then as a result of the questionnaire, you're making an appropriate referral. Right. You're not diagnosing. No. But then you would have a whole bunch of other people that are saying, no, you're stepping well beyond your, your scope in this in this area. If you have any feeling that someone should be referred, it's not your place to issue this questionnaire and then make that decision to refer someone based on the results of that questionnaire. That's not for you to do. Right. So there's the other flip of it. If that made sense. If that makes sense. If I felt like yeah, it made sense. I can see I, your I got point. You. Okay. Uh, I, um, personally, I think I'm doing the patient injustice by not doing that because again I'm making an assumption that someone yeah. else is going to hand them a questionnaire right you just got to do we're what ethically you, feels but right we're with you. also you know the people who there's I, definitely people that are going to be like it's outside yeah, your this is right. this is not this question is not for you to interpret and therefore you making decisions on even just referring somebody well, it's based a standardized on the, questionnaire it's also not it's, it's not, not, not you interpreting, interpreting it. it it's your score is your score is your score I get that but I'm just giving you I'm, no, I'm just know. giving you what, I'm just I asked for your opinion. I'm giving you what Facebook will tell you. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. And and then my my follow up question to that is: Do you take a blood pressure and refer for that? Yeah. Right. Or do you take you, you know do you assess the cranial nerves and refer for that? And I think that questionnaire tells me that patient is outside of my scope of practice mm -hmm. right now. I agree with you. And I you know I I know that you both agree with me. I'm, re <laughs> I'm reiterating it because I can I can feel you can feel Facebook the comments hitting me in the face right now. That's okay. Um, but that's fine. I just won't read them. <laughs> um, oh, no, you got to read them and then you screenshot them and then you post them. That's that's the way to do it. Okay, that's post, Mark's MO. Anytime, anytime we get a, a negative comment anywhere, he's right on that posting it to let everybody know, look, we get some hate. Lots of hate. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely get people that that will come at me and sort of say, well, you're doing too much again. Is this your place to do it? And I'll just say, look, what I was doing before was dangerous. That's my argument. Yeah. If I tell you to just hop on the table and I'm going to massage you, I feel like I, I wasn't really doing anything. And I am the first to be like, you know, I don't I don't counsel anybody. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my counseling is these are resources. There, there's a difference but between counsel and providing resources, where providing resources is very valuable 
and attempting to counsel is incredibly dangerous. Well, just as you you spoke about supplements, so you obviously have an idea of what supplements are, you know, have some research behind them when it comes to concussions. Do you inform your patients that these sorts of things exist and then tell them to go seek advice? Or like, how do you handle that? Because I know all of my patients ask me, you know, someone will come to me and say, oh, I'm having issues with sleep. Talk to me about magnesium. And I will tell them what I know, but I will preface it by saying, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a naturopath. I'm not, I'm none of these things, but this is what I know about magnesium. Yeah. I sort of say the, currently the Ontario Neurotrauma Foundation recommends magnesium, zinc, and melatonin. Those are the three that they recommend on in their long-winded document. And uh, you'll want to go and speak to somebody about, right. about ta- you know, if, if you choose to take them. I believe that they are incredibly valuable, that along with vitamin D and fish oil from the people that I've worked with closely for many years that work as naturopaths and, and managing that portion of the nutritional aspect or the hormonal aspect of concussion. Uh, you know, zinc's really good for for supporting testosterone and stuff like that. I think all those are, are very, very valuable and underutilized. And I think that it's uh, for us to be aware of and mm-hmm. not to obviously prescribe it. But again, if someone says, Connor, have you heard of this homeopathic remedy that uh, addresses concussion? I just use the same line every time. Like Neurotrauma Foundation recommends this, 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 and this. Those are sort of what I'm aware of. And I'll often refer them to, you know, if they're not going to go to a practitioner, examine.com is a really great nutritional resource like it's well researched it's it's an amazing website and a reason uh, amazing resource but i'm also not going to tell that patient like like let's be honest what do the majority of people do hmm. they go to costco and they grab whatever vitamin they want that month right <laughs> right like whatever a, you know a multi- everybody's got a multivitamin you know a multivitamin or what have you uh, or they go to the vitamin store and they're like i'm going to try this supplement so again, it's one of those things where it can become a little bit like the Wild West where people are just sort of doing things and they're not they're not really maybe doing what's best for them. Is that like the Wild West? But at least, well, <laughs> maybe not the Wild West. The Wild West of nutrition. But, <laughs> but it just, it can, you know, I think that again, it's, it's, it's just knowledge and then giving them the appropriate resources. I like what you're doing, man. I do too, because I, I really it. do think that myself included, I'm lumping myself in, but RMTs don't know enough about concussions. It is more common than I think people realize. And just having the confidence to understand what's going on with somebody. And like I said, I've got that client who's had seven concussions and she has all these neurological symptoms. And honestly, sometimes when she comes in and gets on my table, I'm like, Ugh. like I, I wonder how many RMTs care. I'm so curious. How many RMTs care about a lot knowing care. about concussions? I, I think, think there's a lot, a lot that care. I think a lot care. Yeah? yeah? I think a lot care. That's good to know. I think, I think that uh, our industry in general, and that's part of the reason why I'm doing this is like, and I was saying to you earlier before we went on air, like I really like what you two are doing and that you're pushing the envelope of the industry. You are. <laughs> I mean, having the, the conversations is pushing the envelope of the industry because, okay. you know, you're going to get a bunch of Facebook comments. Some are going to be positive. Some are going to be negative. They're going to open up a conversation. Yeah. This becomes perpetuated when we're in school where you go into student clinic, 
you're supposed to be learning how to become a therapist and taking a health history and doing an assessment and you walk into the cubicle to say something and the patient's already on the table because they just want their one hour discounted massage, right? Yeah. And often then students don't get into the routine of like, I'm going to do a health history or I'm going to assess. And then if you leave school and you don't do anything for like six months, by the time you see your first complex shoulder, Mm -hmm. you're like, I don't remember any of this. Absolutely. So I'm just going to get you to hop on the table. I have a really... Uh, I don't even know what the word is. Like, it, it, th- I have a, a story that actually rendered me speechless from last night. We had our networking event last night and there was a therapist here and she routinely goes and gets massages from different therapists. So she doesn't have a regular RMT. She likes, I mean, she's always learning. She comes to a lot of our networking events. She's taken some courses. So she went to get a massage last week from a therapist at a chiropractic clinic. So this was not at a spa. She went to a chiropractic clinic, booked a massage. And when she went in, she started telling the therapist about what um, concerns she had. And the therapist stopped her and said, I'm sorry, I only provide relaxation massages. And she said, what do you mean? You're, you're RMT, right? And she said, yeah. And she said, well, can you focus on you know these areas? Because this is where I'm having problems. And she said, I give the same treatment to everybody. I only provide relaxation treatments. And she then felt like she had to tell this other therapist, I'm an RMT. And this RMT told her, you know, like, I don't really take notes. I give everybody the same massage. I just do relaxation treatments. So she's telling me this last night. And I thought, I don't like, I don't even know how to respond to that. Like, why would you go to school for two years and just decide I'm not going to try to help anyone. That's, I'm just going to provide relaxation You know what, that's massages. fine if you want to only provide relaxation but massages. But that's just, why I made a point of saying it, it was don't in a Don't be chiro- in a chiropractor. Yes. I said, yeah, don't be in a clinic. And that's what, I, yeah, that's what I said to this um, therapist last night. I said, it's fine if that's all she wants to do, but maybe it should be, like you should have been told that as the patient on the phone booking the appointment, you should mm-hmm. have been told yeah. this therapist only provides relaxation. So if there's anything, any concerns you have, this is not the person for you yeah mm-hmm. that person just working in the wrong place mm-hmm. right i'm okay Absolutely. i'm okay with the licensed auto tech that only wants to do fucking brakes and work at oil Absolutely. and work at oil changers and change oil or whatever the case is but you know you're a licensed auto tech you still have the capability of doing all that other shit i get it just don't work at a clinic yeah, yeah. i think that the i think the spa industry is a valuable part of the industry for sure i think that relaxation massage is valuable but Absolutely. I, agree, I agree with you that if uh if you are i say this to my students if you're in a clinical setting, you don't know the first patient you're going to get on day one. Right. It might be shoulder pain and it might be progressive MS. Right. Mm-hmm. You have no idea. So, so if you want really, that challenge. Really using student clinic. But like you said, the problem with student clinics, even when I was a student, is people just see $20 massage, $30 massage. So we were just getting people who, you know, not people who had any kind of complex issues because they were going to a registered therapist. Mm -hmm. We were getting people who were like, I want a $20 massage. Mm -hmm. So was I fully using my, you know, my knowledge of how to do a proper intake? Was I doing assessments? Yeah, Mm -hmm. not really. Yeah. And then like, does the question become, is it actually outside of my scope of practice or I'm just not familiar in doing it because I have done it in so long therefore i say it's outside of my scope of practice (laughs) right like to examine the cranial nerves is not outside your scope not at all everyone did it in school so to then say i can't examine a concussion doesn't really make that much sense to me because by trying to determine whether or not someone has a concussion you should be doing a cranial nerve exam absolutely That, that would be 
that would be commonplace in any neurological injury. What you need to keep in mind is concussions have only become really prominent in the research in like the last 20 years. Massage education in the last 20 years, I wouldn't say has evolved at the same rate at which concussion research has evolved. Like you, like I don't know. I don't really, I, I know that our, at our college, we're not teaching it a lot. You need to, you, you just need to go on a college tour, man. <laughs> Maybe. But I, I know I'm I, kidding. Yeah, I, I know it's not really being taught a lot. So I don't know again, maybe that's just like one of those things where it's like we're you know, therapists are coming out and they're not feeling confident that they want to be that they can be part of the conversation. I know there are RMTs that are doing great work in the field, but my goal of this is to like bring a lot more to the table for mm-hmm. this group and have people at the end of the weekend be like yeah, I can definitely be part of the conversation now and be confident. So where can we find you, Connor? How do how do people find you? How do people sign up for your courses? Because I guarantee you there's people that are going to be listening to this that are saying, yes, I want to do this. Well, luckily enough, I just got my shopping cart live before I came here strategically. <laughs> uh, so my, my website's uh, Connor P. Collins. That's C-O-N-O-R-P-C-O-L-L-I-N-S.com. And then uh, I'm on Instagram, Connor Paul Collins. I think my Facebook is maybe facebook.com slash CP Collins. Maybe, I think. Maybe, maybe. But uh, (laughs) the website's like where all the course dates are right now. We've got a course in Hamilton, April 18th, 19th, 2020. And then we're going to Moncton and... Uh, we'll be in Calgary and BC for sure. And uh, the goal next year is to hit every Canadian province if possible. Sweet. Let's go take this in BC. You and I have traveled to the East Coast so many times, we've never gone West. So I'll be in BC Let's probably in October, hopefully. <laughs> Who wants to go West? I do. I do have one more question for you before we call this wrap. Other than uh, read concussion research, what the hell do you do for fun? Buy shoes. Uh, I, uh, I just like to run. So I'm like a half marathon yeah. runner. Um, and just like to lift weights, stay in shape, cook. I mm. like to cook a lot. What's what's your what's your your least favorite thing to 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 do in the kitchen? Least favorite thing yeah. to do in the kitchen? Yeah, I like I pretty much like everything in the kitchen. To be honest, mm. I like cooking any anything from scratch. Yeah. So do you, do you like peeling garlic? That's probably it. Yeah. Peeling garlic. Do you like <laughs> do you like cooking shows? I do. What's your favorite cooking show? I like anything by Maddie Matheson. You know Maddie Matheson. He's Mm-mm. from Toronto. Mm. He's got a YouTube channel. Just check it out. I will. A, I love cooking. He's a he's he's amazing. Uh, yeah, Maddie Matheson. Any anything by him? Chefs, people that prepare stuff in the kitchen. I'm not a food guy at all, but that's fascinating as shit to me. That I can watch. What's that fucking show where they have like mystery shit? He loves uh, watching Chopped. Loves yeah, it. My my uh, my brothers my brothers worked on Chopped. He works in the industry in Toronto here, and he's worked on all those shows, Chopped and uh, Master Chef Canada. Those things are insane to me. Yeah. It's like you just hear some shit and make you're, something happen yeah, from you're it. You're creating something amazing. Yes, nothing. I aspire to be like that, but I'm very amateur. Mm, I'm so. like nowhere near there. I will think that I'm a decent cook until I watch something like that. I'm like, yeah, no, I can't cook for shit. Yeah, so I'll just hop on YouTube, see see who's making something great and try to give my own rookie version of it. Right on. Yeah. This was fun. Thanks for coming by. Thanks a lot for yeah, having me. Thanks. Appreciate it. You guys have been listening to Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. Peace.